thank you. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Good evening, and uh, yes, I thank you for coming out on this rainy night, cold night. Um, I appreciate that you're here. Um, I always like to get a feel for who I'm talking to in terms of the subject that I'm talking about. And so for that reason, um, could you please raise your hand if you have not, if, if you are not familiar with my book, uh, The Mind Illuminated? There's quite a few of you. Okay, good. I, um, uh, and then the rest of you are, and I'm talking the screen. Hey, I'm on. Okay, good. All right. I'm sorry about that. Um, so apparently you heard most of what I've already said, but this will make it a lot easier for the rest, the rest of the evening. Um, yes. So I'm going to be talking about attention and awareness. Um, and for those of you that aren't familiar with my book, uh, I'm going to pre be presenting an idea that is probably new to you conceptually, but you are going to recognize it experientially. Um, and uh, I, I and, and hopefully learn how to use these concepts uh, which describe something that's been taking place in your mind all your life. But understanding them conceptually is going to allow you to use these. Okay. Uh, Cliff, if we want to be interactive, is there a microphone that people yes. could use? Okay. Because I, I, I like that. I, I really do. I, I do best um, with... Uh, kind of question and answer format, but first I'm going to talk to you and uh, and then do a, a guided meditation, and then we'll, we'll hopefully have time for some some Q and A after that. Um, so I, let's let's start just right at the very basics. Let's let's get as basic as we can here. Okay. Um, who or what are you? I'm sure you've asked yourself that question. And um, regardless of anything that you've heard or read or feel like you're supposed to know uh, about who or what you are, um, what are you? Do the terms nama and rupa mean anything to you? Yes? Anybody not familiar with the terms nama and rupa? Ah, okay. Okay. Um, and then I would suppose there's probably quite a few of you who are also not familiar with what are called the five aggregates. Is that Are the people who are not familiar with that concept? A few. A few. Most of them. Okay. All right. Well, we're not going to get into the five aggregates in detail, but for those of you that are familiar with the five aggregates, um, 
four of them are nama, their mind. Nama actually means name, but um, the, that's that's the the root meaning of nama in Sanskrit. But um, interestingly enough, it is uh, it refers to anything that is mental in nature, and it's interesting to contemplate the significance uh, of that. It, it doesn't mean mind literally. There are other words, uh, uh, vijnana or vijnana, depending on Pali or the Sanskrit, and citta are, are other words that mean mind. But they say that a person consists of nama and rupa. And nama refers to the mental aspects of what you are. And rupa refers to the bodily or physical aspects of what you are. Now, when you think about it, and and I want you to do so now, you're thinking about who and what am I? I am body and mind. Well, let's look at the body part of it. Are you your body? Could you conceive of your mind being in a different body? So, at least in the way that you... If that's true, that you could conceive of yourself as being in a different body, um, then that suggests that that your deep down your perception of who you are is not that you are your body. Although, historically, uh, a lot of people would have thought that. But most modern people, um, for all kinds of reasons, I mean, you can have parts of your body replaced. You can have somebody else's heart transplanted into your chest. You can lose your leg and have, have it replaced with a metal and plastic device and still walk around. Um, modern people rarely identify themselves with their body. And to the degree that they do, that that identification is still subservient to the idea of more that I am my mind. Right? Does anybody disagree with that? Is that not... You identify more with your mind than anything else. Um, but when we say mind, what are we really referring to? I mean, when you think, I am my mind, what are you really referring to? Thoughts and stories? Yes. Your mind is full of thoughts and stories of who you are. And how did you come to know those thoughts and stories? You, you become conscious of them, right? Okay, yes. And where do they come from? Um, and, and where are the memories when you're not remembering them? Well... If, if you're a materialist, you might think, okay, they're, they're in the brain somewhere. Uh, and 
even if even if you you know if you just take it from the point of view of the mind uh, when you're not conscious of them they're stored somewhere in your unconscious mind right and where do the stories come from when they come up they come from your unconscious mind and probably you've all noticed that although we will say things like uh, I thought what really happens when you have a thought you become conscious of a thought. And where did the where did the thought come from? Did you? Yeah, it came from somewhere else. That's right, somewhere else that you you can't see, that you can't get at, right? Your thoughts appear in consciousness. From you know they're mental in nature, and so um, obviously a big part of your mind that is producing all these things is unconscious. And, and in terms of memory, sometimes you try really hard to remember something and you know it's in there, in where. It, it, so it's, it's in the unconscious somewhere. Please, unconscious, put it into my consciousness so I can, so I can say that person's name before I get embarrassed. <laughs> or answer the question on the test. Right? Or whatever. And... Uh, most of the time, your unconscious mind obliges. So who are you in this? You, well, you, you're, you're your intention, attention, but your attention is, it's, it's part of the conscious, consciousness, right? Yeah. Yeah. So is it not the case that the most accurate description that you can give to yourself of what you are is a series of conscious experiences. Yeah. And just as behind that series of conscious experiences, we hypothesize that there is this large unconscious mind that holds so much compared to what's in our consciousness at any given moment. What you, what's in your unconscious is obviously tremendously more and doing tremendously more than what's going on in your conscious mind. In the course of your day, how many of your activities are truly conscious? Many of them, not at all. Some of them, partly so. You're mostly conscious of doing and having uh, thing, uh, of, of, of doing things, but and you will tell yourself the story that I did that, something will happen to you and you'll experience a, a thought and an emotion and you might do something and you'll tell yourself the story that this happened to me and so I thought about it and I felt this way, and so I decided to do such and such. And what really happened was that um, an experience entered your consciousness, that uh, it was followed by thoughts and emotions, and it was followed by an impulse to act in a particular way. And you might or might not have thought about it before you carried through on that action, or that speech, or whatever. But 
my real point here is um, all that you have direct experience of is your consciousness. And it seems pretty obvious to you that you have a huge part of your mind that's unconscious, right? Now this is, this is, this is an interesting thing compared to what I'm going to talk about when I talk about awareness and attention, okay? Because awareness and attention are kind of, as two different things, are, are revolutionary ideas in the same way that the idea that we have a conscious and an unconscious mind. If we went back in time to the 19th century and spoke to some of the most brilliant and most well-educated people, we would have to coax out of them, you know, sort of like Socrates did with his students, we would have to coax out of them the recognition that there was such a thing as an unconscious mind. The idea that our mind consists, consists of a conscious and an unconscious part is something that everyone today takes for granted and that you all learned at, at some very early age. Um, you learned it from people around you and you took it for granted. But prior to uh, prior to Freud and Jung and the whole revolution in uh, psychology that took place in the early part of the 20th century, people had no explicit recognition that their mind consisted of consciousness and an un- unconscious mind. Isn't that interesting? Yet, to you, it's so obvious. And of course, like I said, if we went back in time, we could coax that understanding out of a person by asking the kinds of questions that I asked you a few minutes ago. But it was a revolutionary realization. Um, Nowadays, we translate the uh, Sanskrit word vijnana, and the Pali word vijnana, they, they correspond to each other, as consciousness. But for well over 2,000 years, when people used that word vijnana or vijnana, they conflated mind with consciousness. They didn't really make a clear distinction that consciousness wasn't identical to mind. Because just like you, when you try to ask yourself who you are, what am I, what you've come up with is consciousness. And if you hadn't already known, had the concept of the unconscious, um, if you looked at your mind closely, you would have had to invent it. And that did happen, by the way. For those of you that are familiar uh, with uh, Buddhist dharma and Buddhist literature, Buddhist history, um, when uh, part of the Pali canon that is referred to as the Abhidhamma was created, uh, these were all tremendous meditators who had spent a lot of time 
examining their own minds in meditation, investigating their own minds. And they realize that their language and their concepts didn't fully account for what they experienced. And so they noticed that they could only pay attention to one thing at a time. And so they came up with this concept of you can uh, you have a series of moments of consciousness, but each moment of consciousness can only hold one thing at a time. But what they're really talking about was attention. And you know that. You can only really pay attention to one thing at a time. Well, you might have the illusion that you can pay attention to two things at a time, and sometimes three things at a time. But one of the things that you're going to find out, um, if if you haven't already discovered this, is what's really happening, is that your attention is going back and forth. When you think you're paying attention to two things at one time, your attention is going back and forth between those two things, or three things, or four things, and you know there's a limit. There's not very—it's—it's not possible to track very many things at once because attention is bouncing around to these different things, and the more it bounces around, the less time it's on any one, right? Yeah. So, so here we have. Consciousness is somehow central to everything. We are fortunate enough that we have the recognize the recognition that there is an unconscious mind, which it, which solves a whole lot of problems and accounts for a whole lot of things. But but the uh, the followers of the Buddha who assembled the Abhidhamma had to invent something to account for what connected these moments of consciousness which were actually moments of attention because they didn't distinguish between attention and awareness, but they didn't distinguish between consciousness and unconscious either. So they, they invented something. Well, they really invented a, a word to describe something. The word they invented was bawanga. Bawanga means the continuum of becoming. And that accounted for what linked one moment of consciousness to another. And then... Quite a bit later on, there was another school of Buddhism uh, in the Mahayana called the Yoga Charans. They were called the Yoga Charans because they were they were super into meditation. You know, there, there there's always been a scholarly aspect of Buddhism, and there's always been those Buddhists who who said, "No, this is all about meditating. This is all about examining your own mind." And the Yoga Charans recognized. They, they developed a more complete picture of the mind. So they, they took the recognition that there was this huge part of the mind that was unconscious, um, and um, remember, they only had one word, vijnana. That, that's the Sanskrit. There was a Sanskrit school. They only had one word, vijnana, which nowadays we translate as consciousness, and which they um, called the alaya, and it's often referred to as the alaya vijnana, and alaya means a storehouse. So it's the storehouse consciousness, except that it's unconscious. Right? 
You follow what happened there? Yeah, they they recognized what Freud articulated very clearly uh, much, much later. They recognized that and they fit it into their conceptual picture of things. Uh, they also, uh, there's another Vijnana that they recognize the presence of uh, that is uh, uh, referred to as the eye consciousness. That's the that's the part of your mind that tells you tells the story of who you are, yeah. Yeah. and so they added they added that. Prior to that, it spoke it spoke of six kinds of consciousness: eye consciousness, ear consciousness, touch consciousness, smell consciousness, taste consciousness, and mind consciousness. All referring to the object, and mind consciousness meant being conscious of thoughts and emotions and memories and things like that. So they added to this six, the, the, the manas or eye consciousness, the, the consciousness that tells the story of who you are, and the alaya, which is the storehouse consciousness, was really the unconscious mind. And this helped a lot. It helped them enormously because they were meditating and now, now they had a way to think about they had a way to think conceptually about what they were experiencing in their meditation, which was of tremendous value to them. And they also used it in the further development of, uh, of Dharma concepts. And so the Alaya Vijnana was, of course, what it was at the storehouse of. It was a storehouse of your karma, of your conditioning, of those invisible factors that that determined uh, who you are, your, your personality, your characteristics, your, your, the traits that you have, uh, that you manifest, that we would call your personality. So, the, the picture that I'm trying to paint for you, and prepare you for a, a further revolution in the recognition of what what and who we are in terms of our mind. So, historically, only those people who are deeply steeped in certain Buddhist doctrines recognized uh, explicitly that there was an unconscious and a conscious mind. And everybody else kind of lived in the fantasy world of the narrating mind, the manas that tells the story, uh, not realizing that uh, where do these thoughts come from? Uh, Where do these impulses and inclinations come from? They come from unconscious mind. And now we can look at consciousness uh, and understand it in a clearer way. And really, what's really interesting about this, it's really important that we do this, because um, it's really the only thing we uh, experience. Let's take the other aspect of what a person is. Nama and Rupa. Rupa is your body. It seems solid. My hand can feel my leg. My eyes can see. I see that you have legs and you have arms, you have eyes. Uh, I'm feeling, you know, I can feel my eyes. I can see with my eyes. I can I can tell they're like your eyes. I can look in a mirror. Um, 
But, but wait a minute. If I close my eyes and put my hand on my leg, all there are is sensation, sensations. There are sensations that come from my hand and the sensations that come from my leg. If I touch a material object, it's just the sensations that come from my hand. I open my eyes and I look at my body and I look at other people's bodies and I put that together with the feelings that I have. And I create in my mind a body. But what really does your mind know? Conscious or unconscious, what really does your mind know? Consciously, what do you ever really know about this body? You experience sensations only. So rupa, although it means body, in a sense, your, your re, whatever is really out there that is carrying your mind around, you don't really know it directly. All you know it, all, you only know it through the sensations that, are, that arise in your mind. So, very interesting, isn't it? So everything comes back to the mind, and it comes back to consciousness. And now, here we are, we're seekers after truth. So are scientists. At one point in my life, I wanted to be a physicist. As a matter of fact, I, in my adolescence, I formed the very powerful wish and motivation that has driven me my entire life of wanting to know what truly is, wanting to know the truth about who and what I am and this universe is and so forth. And to me, I saw two possible paths. One was science and one was uh, spirituality. not going to church and saying prayer spirituality, but those kinds of deep mystical experiences which I had heard and read about, that you've heard and read about, that are supposed to give us profound insight into the true, well, into the truth of, of what is, right? We're seekers after that truth. And we realize that all we have to work with is our consciousness. So we're a series of conscious experiences, and what constitutes consciousness is really, really important. And so we sit down, and we close our eyes, and we examine our mind as a pathway to find truth. Like I say, there was a point in my life where I wanted to go into physics. Because that's the, other, that's the other pathway that you can go into, is to study the physical universe that we know through our senses and through the machines that we build as extensions of our senses. And that's really all that they are. Um, and we know that our senses are limited. After all, dogs can hear sounds that we can't, birds can see uh, colors that we can't, and uh, 
we're limited by our senses. And our senses have been extended by various machines that we've built. But we're still limited. Um, as a matter of fact, we don't even know where to look outside of that which relates to our senses. Science is one way of pursuing truth, and looking inside is the other way of pursuing truth. And as meditators, you may also be scientists. I became a scientist, and I chose to study in particular the brain because I I realized that meditation, spiritual, I, I shouldn't say meditation, because at that point I saw spirituality, looking inward and discovering some greater truth that was not discoverable through the external senses, was one, one, of, the, one of the paths to truth. And examining the physical world of, of which I was a part was another, and that my mind and my brain were related. And so I set myself to studying my brain from the inside through meditation and my mind from the outside through neuroscience in search of this greater truth. And so that kind of brings us to the place where why we're all here together. We're all meditators, and I think you are all, to some degree, are you not seeking some greater, deeper understanding of yourself, of the reality that you're a part of? Well, it's possible that not everyone is that's here tonight. And some of you may have come to meditation as a way to achieve, to reduce the stress in your life and to be more productive and to improve the quality of your relationships and to become a happier and more well-adjusted person. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But even if that was your motivation to come to meditation, I warrant that there is a part of you that is longing for the answer to these existential questions of who in the heck, what in the heck am I, and what is this all about anyway? No? And so we meditate. And um, some of you have probably been meditating for quite a long time. And probably represented in this room quite a few different uh, meditation techniques, different methods, right? That, that you've learned and that you've practiced. Well, in all the meditation instruction that I was exposed to, and um, this is probably true for the vast majority of you, a lot is said about attention, right? 
A lot is said about attention. The other word that comes up a lot is mindfulness. And how many of you can just raise your hand if you think you can give a really good definition of what mindfulness is? How many of you have a vague sense of what it is? <laughs> and yet, you hear and read about all these people who sound like they know every all they know exactly what mindfulness is, right? But attention, you know what that is, right? And when people talk about mindfulness, what do they say? They say things like uh, mindfulness, one of the definitions that you've probably heard, mindfulness is paying attention uh, on purpose and non-judgmentally. Is that a definition that you've heard? Um, when... Uh, of the different methods of meditation that I tried, and uh, over the years there were many. There was there was TM. That was that was one of the first ones that really produced anything for me. You know, I got a mantra, and I was so excited because I actually I was able to do something and have some experiences that um, looked like they were heading in the right direction. But I was told to repeat this mantra and to pay attention to it. And what happened to me when I did that is I'd be paying attention to the mantra and then I'd realize that I'd been mind-wandering, I'd been thinking about things. I completely forgot why I was sitting there in that chair. you know. And then later on, when I learned... Uh, uh, Mahasi style vipassana noting practice. I'd sit down and observe the rise and fall of my abdomen, and some distraction would come up, and I would label it, and I would go back to the rise and fall. And it wouldn't be long though before I would suddenly realize that my mind had just taken a trip around my private little world, and um, I had totally forgot what I was sitting there. By that time, I was sitting on a cushion instead of a chair. And the thing that was confusing about all of this is that two words would be used, but they would be used interchangeably. You know, focus your attention on the rise and fall of your abdomen, just like focus your attention on the, on the breath. And it sounded like there wasn't supposed to be anything else in my mind. Oh yeah, I tried some yoga meditation techniques too, as well. Um, if you're familiar with uh, Advaita Vedanta, that was one of the things that I, I tried. And, um, I tried meditating on candle flames and, and things like that. Later on, um, it was visualizing things. But it was always the same thing. It was always talk about paying attention and um, be aware of and uh, 
Focus your awareness, focus your attention. The two words were used more or less interchangeably. Um, But my personal experience was that I could focus my attention on something, but I would still, I couldn't shut out all of this other stuff. All of this other stuff was present at the same time. And it always seemed like I wasn't following the instructions. Have you had that experience? Have you had that feeling? That it seems like, you know, everything else is supposed to disappear. Quiet your mind. So I I would envy those people who said, you know, uh, oh, I just, you know, I just sit there and I just became my breath and that's all there was. There was nothing else. You know, and that was not what was happening in my mind. (laughs) And the other thing, of course, is getting drowsy and falling asleep. And there's something that all those people teaching meditation knew who were trying to tell us, but they didn't have a conceptual framework to do it in. They didn't have the words, they didn't have the language to tell us. And they're still doing that. They're still doing that and they're throwing around this word mindfulness and they're using attention and awareness interchangeably and things like this. Well, it started to become clearer and clearer to me that whatever I did with my attention, it was really hard to stop being aware of other things. And the only time I ever seemed to be able to stop being aware of other things and see, now I'm starting to use attention and awareness in the sense that that is, is uh, that I'm I want to use it from here on. But the only time I stopped being aware of other things, I also soon fell asleep. And those people that I were I was envying, um, you know, the teacher would say, relaxed alertness, but they weren't alert. You know, they would say, I don't, I had a great meditation. I don't know where I went, but I was gone. That's not alertness. You know, I had this alertness where I was struggling to, you know, I I knew that I was knowing all of these other things. I knew that these thoughts kept coming up. I knew that I was feeling sensations in my body that were generating thoughts like, you know, oh, that, that's uncomfortable. Oh, I really want to move. Oh, I'm not supposed to move. Wait a minute, I'm thinking. I'm not supposed to be thinking. Okay, all right. And we'd keep going on. And I was starting to have the same realization that my teachers had, but which they were incapable of articulating, which is that I was intuiting that there were two different processes taking place. And there was only one of them that I was in control of. And I had to really struggle to control it because it was always wanting to go off. And, you know, it was saying, okay, the breath, uh, the Buddha, Buddha image, uh, the mantra, 
whatever it happened to be, you would say, okay, that's fine. Okay, let's move on. No, 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 come back. Or it would just get caught by something, right? And then there was this other process that was going on that I had kept trying to shut down. And I really started to make process progress when I stopped trying to shut it down. So it was really kind of a giving up, but it was a giving up that opened things up. And at that point, my meditation became what I always wanted it to be. I was starting to pay attention to my own... Or, or, no, I'm, now I'm not using the word correct. I was starting to know what was going on in my own mind. I was starting to have a bigger picture. Yes, there's my attention. It's, it's on the breath. Oh, that's great. Oh, my attention is on a thought now. Oh, okay. Well, I'll bring it back to the breath. Okay, there's still those thoughts there, though. You know, actually, it wasn't just that thought. There were a bunch of thoughts. They keep coming and going. And all kinds of stimuli. Somebody next to me in the room would cough, and uh, I would react to that. And I would think my attention would go to that. I'd say, no, come back, come back. Okay. Yeah. But I stopped fighting against being aware of everything else. And my attention, my aware, my, my meditation started being more of what I'd always wanted it to be. But I didn't quite understand, and I still had the feeling that I was doing something wrong. Because somehow I was supposed to know my mind, but I shouldn't be having all these thoughts at the same time. I should just be knowing my mind. And I shouldn't be... I, I shouldn't be feeling all these things I was feeling and hearing all these things that I was hearing and having the thoughts and emotions that arose in response to that. And I wasn't supposed to be getting annoyed at myself and everything. But that was happening anyway. And uh, and and I felt better when I wasn't fighting against it. And I actually knew my meditation was giving me what I wanted. But I felt kind of guilty because it didn't sound like I was doing what it said in the books. It didn't sound like I was doing what the teacher was saying, right? And then, as having an interest in neuroscience, and cognitive, uh, cognitive science, I noticed, I, I realized that what what the what the cognitive scientists were starting to say, and they didn't have a language for it either. They would use different words, like um, they they also would conflate attention and awareness. But the, they would they would talk about focused attention and broad attention, and they would talk about um, um, explicit and implicit knowing they were different they were using different terminologies but what they were doing is making up a list of characteristics of these two different ways of knowing and then the neuroscientists got on the bandwagon and they noticed that the when you got subjects to do these th- th- kinds of things that fit this list of a way of knowing 
that depending on, on whether you were doing uh, electroencephalography or whether you were doing um, fMRIs or whatever, that there are completely different brain processes involved than when you got people to do things that belong to this li- list of ways of knowing. When you got people to do focused task sorts of things, then there were areas in the brain that lit up in, in the fMRI that um, were located uh, on, on, on the dorsal, uh, that's the upper surface, and uh, lateral parts of both hemispheres of the brain. And when you got people to do things that involved a kind of vigilance, a kind of, you know, uh, the kind of state that uh, a deer would be in naturally, right? That sort of open awareness. When you got people to do tasks, that, then completely different regions of the brain would light up that were more on the undersurface, the ventral surface, uh, and the medial surface, the, the two sides, where the two hemispheres face each other, and were predominantly on the right side of the brain. So this was all of a sudden, this crystallized into an understanding. Yes, we have these two completely different ways of knowing. And the cognitive scientist had made a list of the characteristics of this one way of knowing. And the neuroscientist had shown that completely different parts of the brain were involved in that way of perceiving, that mode of perception. And then there's this other mode of perception that had a, a, a completely different set of characteristics and that was associated with activity in completely different parts of the brain, different neural circuitry. And I took that into my own personal experience and all of a sudden everything made sense. This one way of knowing, you know, this start playing with my slides. I had all these wonderful slides made for me. And uh, these are are all from my book. So So here is a model of conscious experience that I generated based on the published information on cognitive uh, neuroscience and uh, uh, anatomical neuroscience. So you have a field of conscious awareness. In any given moment, you have a field of conscious awareness. And it includes a lot of things. So that is kind of... That's the most accurate description of what your experience is, most moment to moment, isn't it? You have a field of conscious awareness, and uh, wait a minute, let me. I, you, yes, why didn't I do this for you? There you go. Now you can see this light. So it consists of whatever you're experiencing in the moment. So this person is, you know, they're having a thought. Uh, they're aware. Uh, that they're holding a teacup, they're aware of the sound of music playing on a radio, they're aware of sounds of traffic, 
there's a window with a tree outside, there's a dog in the room. They're aware of all these things at the same time. That's their field of conscious awareness. And isn't this the way it happens that you can be paying attention to one thing, but you're still aware of everything else at the same time. But there's a qualitative difference in what's in that circle, what you're focusing your attention on. When you shift that focus to something else, you become more fully conscious of it, and everything else remains there in the background, right? I mean, this has been my experience my whole life. And this was my experience in my meditation, which I'd been fighting against, and which I finally surrendered to, and my meditations got better. So attention and peripheral awareness are two different ways of knowing the world. Over this weekend, you're going to see that this how important this distinction becomes. I'm, I'm still in the process in my own, uh, in my own studies uh, and in the work that's being done. I'm still in the process of discovering the enormous ramifications of this. They are absolutely enormous. We have simultaneously these two ways of experiencing these wor- the world. Attention singles out some small part of the content of the field of conscious awareness from the rest. And it analyzes it, and it interprets it, and it particularly interprets it in relation to ourselves. And it only stays on something that has some kind of importance to ourselves. I mean, you focus your attention on something, uh, uh, say you have a hobby, and you're making something, and you focus your attention on it. What your attention is focused on is the source of your satisfaction and enjoyment. And your attention stays on it because it's making you feel good. You focus your attention on something when you're at work because um, you get paid to do that. And if you didn't focus attention on it and things went haywire, you'd lose your job. Right? So you've got a, you've got a good personal reason um, for paying attention to it. But at the same time, you have peripheral awareness. And peripheral awareness is holistic. It's open. It's inclusive. It has a lot of things in it. Whereas attention just isolates something out of the field of conscious awareness. Conscious awareness is everything else that you're conscious of. The thing that you'll notice about awareness when you start when you start to think in these when you bring this conceptual frame framework to the experience that you've been living your entire life and in your meditation, you'll start to recognize these different characteristics. What is present in peripheral awareness isn't highly conceptualized. And it's actually the relationship of everything that's in the field of conscious awareness that is that stands out and is more significant. So what I found and what I've passed on to you and what worked wonders for me was that 
you work with attention and peripheral awareness to cultivate stable attention and mindfulness. The two main objectives of your meditation that everybody's been telling you that if you do this practice and follow the instructions I give you, uh, you're going to develop stable attention and mindfulness, right? But, uh, and then and then you struggle to do it. And sometimes if you're lucky, uh, it will happen to you. And it takes a long time because you don't know what you're doing. The difference is that once you know, once you have a conceptual framework to put it in, once you can examine it and... Uh, then you realize you can use these two things. One of the things that um, stable attention is the ability to direct and sustain the focus of attention and to control the scope of attention. It's one of the things you want to develop in meditation. And you all know how hard that is, right? Because attention moves spontaneously uh, there's three different ways it moves spontaneously. One is scanning. So even while you're sitting there focused on the breath, or sitting there listening to a conversation of somebody else, at the same time your attention is bouncing all over the place, looking for something that might be important, or of more interest. And so it moves around spontaneously. And of course, any one of these things, if it is more important of more interest, it will capture your attention. And that's what happens. It's one of the things that happens to you in your meditation. The second kind of spontaneous movement happens when attention gets captured by something. So that's when a thought with a lot of emotional uh, content arises in your mind in meditation, and boom, you're gone and you forget that you were meditating. Um, or there's a loud sound and you start, yeah, you're meditating and the dog starts barking next door. And you start having thoughts about how annoying that is and you know, of course, you're in the city. Maybe you don't have that experience as much, but you know, um, you can you can picture what it's like outside of New York City, where somebody might be meditating in their bedroom, and the neighbor's dog is chained up outside and unhappy and barking, and you start to think about that poor dog and those nasty neighbors, and why should I have to put up with this and all that kind of stuff. Something captures your attention. And the third kind of spontaneous movement is where attention alternates between two or more things. What you're after is to get to a place where spontaneous movements of attention stop and uh, your attention remains wherever you put it. Now, there's two purposes in this. There's two, two valuable things that come from this. Okay? The first thing is early in the meditative process, when you're learning to, to stabilize attention, you're also learning to develop strong peripheral awareness. And I'll explain why that's so important. But you can't have good, strong, clear peripheral awareness when your attention is bouncing all over the place. So the main reason for... Nobody ever pointed this out to me, but I'm going to point it out to you, and I guarantee you it's going to make a big difference in your meditation. Why am I trying to focus my object on this 
of my, of my attention on this particular object. Anyway, what is, what is so magical about having your attention focused on the breath or anything else you can think of? It gets it out of the way. That's the first good thing about it. It gets it out of the way so that you can develop a really powerful peripheral awareness, which you can in turn use to help stabilize your attention. Which, as your attention becomes more stable, not only does your peripheral awareness become stronger, but you can begin to direct it internally and start to experience your own mind directly and see what's happening in your own mind. So that's one, that's one of the reasons why just about every meditation practice that you come across is, even though the people teaching it, uh, even the, the people that develop that practice historically through process of trial and error and everything else, even though they may not have been able to articulate it because they didn't have attention and awareness as two distinct concepts, they didn't have the benefit of what I found from cognitive science and, and, and uh, neuroscience. But the reason that they're always trying to get you to stabilize your attention is that the only way that that's going to happen is for you to have enough peripheral awareness to keep your attention from moving. And the only way you're going to have that much peripheral awareness is to keep your attention anchored to something. And so that's why they always teach it that way. And now it makes sense. Now all of a sudden you can see why. Well, the part that we didn't answer yet is, so like, what's so great about having really strong peripheral awareness other than it helps you to develop stable attention? I'm kind of going in a circle here now, aren't we? There must be something really, really valuable about that, right? Uh, and there is. The other thing that they're telling you in one form or another, and they, they might not use the word mindfulness in, in some of the systems you practice in, but they're talking about the same thing, is mindfulness. And mindfulness is... Mindfulness is... The optimal interaction between attention and peripheral awareness. And mindfulness in meditation is what's going to allow you to develop the skills to be the kind of meditator who has deep insight and who will eventually experience awakening. That's also Mindfulness, when you bring it into your daily life, is also what's going to make all kinds of dramatic changes in your life. When you're mindful in your daily life, you don't react so quickly. You respond. You're more likely to respond rather than react. Um, When you have an optimal interaction between peripheral awareness and attention, you take into account the context of the situation you're in. An example that I often use is you're in a an interaction with somebody that you care about and uh, they say or do something that pushes one of your buttons and you say or do something that's very hurtful to them. Well, what happened is that you you went out of, you, you lost the context. 
And that happens to us all the time. We lose our mindfulness, and then we react instead of respond. And we do things that we regret afterwards. We say, why did I do that? Afterwards, we find ourselves trying to clean up the mess we made from not being mindful. It's the optimal interaction. In meditation, though, it's how we... um, Let's just review the characteristics of peripheral awareness and attention. Peripheral awareness is holistic, relational, and contextual. Attention isolates and analyzes. Peripheral awareness filters all incoming information. There's something that you will find out now that you've got a conceptual framework to observe in, is that everything that you ever pay attention to first appears in awareness before it becomes an object of attention. Now, it takes a while to realize that that's 100% true for everything. Initially, it will be obvious to you that most things you'll say, yes, I was aware of that before my attention went to it. As a matter of fact, my attention could not have gone to it had it not been present in my field of conscious awareness first. Had I not already known it was there, my attention couldn't have gone to it. Um, But there'll be things like you'll say, well, a door slamming, my attention went to that right away. As As your perceptual acuity increases, you'll realize that you're aware of the sound before your attention went to it. And if this were, we can measure what happens in the brain and we can, we can show that the parts of your mind that uh, function to produce the phenomenon of awareness receive that information before the parts of your mind that involve attention became activated by that particular thing. It, awareness acts as a watchful alert system. Think, you know, I gave you the example of a, a deer. A deer has to be, you know, it's a prey animal. Um, there's all kinds of predators that would like to eat that deer for lunch. Uh, it has to have a lot of awareness to avoid getting eaten. Um, attention hones in on something. Now, if there's a particular sound that awareness alerts attention to, attention will go and focus on that particular unusual, unrecognized sound. If you're a deer, it will be to see if that sound is something that you better run away from. And if it can't identify it, if it identifies it as something safe and familiar, the deer just goes back to browsing, doing whatever it was doing. But if it doesn't know what it is, or if it identifies it as something to be afraid of, the deer runs away, right? Um, Peripheral awareness involves less processing and quicker responses. And attention is much slower. It involves serial processing. When the deer starts running, you ever watch deer run away from something? Had that opportunity? Or rabbits, or any kind of But I I get to watch deer a lot. I live in a place with a lot of deer. They take off running, and they're jumping over obstacles, and they're going between trees and under limbs and things like this at an incredible speed. 
And believe me, they are not paying attention to these things and analyzing, you know, should I go right or left around this tree? All that is happening. There's less processing taking place. There's only one purpose, and that is what is what is the most direct path away from whatever it is that made that deer start running. And so it doesn't need to do much. All of that's the only processing that needs to happen. And it happens, and the deer is in a state of awareness. And it's, it's amazing. You watch it. Wow, you know. It's, it's almost like it was already programmed and knew where to go. As a matter of fact, in your daily life, you'll start to recognize that you're responding to things in your awareness all of the time. And that if you had to do, if you had to respond to all of these things um, with attention, that um, you get really bogged down very, very quickly. Um, Just take the example of when you're having a conversation and eating a meal. If you had to direct your attention to the process of eating, uh, your conversation, your dinner conversation would constantly be interrupted, right? And you'd probably forget what you're talking about half the time. And certainly you'd miss what the other person was saying over and over again. But that doesn't happen, does it? Awareness allows you to make all these, to take all these actions, to enjoy your meal, to even savor the flavor while you're carrying on the conversation. Um, one of the most interesting things about awareness is it's very allocentric, other-centered, uh, less personal, more objective. Um, you experience awareness just as you, you are a point of view in perspective, not as a self. Whereas attention is very self-centered. And a lot of what attention is doing. I mean, what happens when you don't have something to do? Let's say you're uh, you're sitting idly uh, on the on the subway somewhere, and your mind doesn't have anything in particular to focus on. What is your attention doing? It's it's kind of running around all kinds of things, uh, worries that you have about yourself, or things that happen to you, or what you need to do, stuff like that, right? Yeah. Attention, attention is more self-centered, and both can be introspective uh, or ex- extrospective. Now, I didn't. I have to explain those words there. Extrospective means everything outside your mind. Introspective means inside your mind. But peripheral awareness can be introspective and extrospective at the same time. You can be aware of sounds and sensations in your body which originate outside your mind at the same time that you are aware of thoughts and emotions arising in your mind. Attention is different. You're either paying attention to a sensation or a sound or you're paying attention to the thought or emotion that arose in response to it. But you can't pay attention to both things at once. And as a matter of fact, when you look introspectively, basically the only thing you find is that you're looking introspectively unless what you look for is whatever it was you were aware of before you looked introspectively with your attention. You're nodding your head. You know what I'm talking about. 
Huh? Yeah, right. Yeah, well, that's what you'll find. And that's one of the things that you'll do in meditation. What, what we want to, the way we want to use these things in meditation is to, let me see. Well, I'm, I think I'm going to, I'll just put this slide back up then. What you, the way you use this in meditation is, first of all, that moment when you realize that your mind was wandering and you weren't meditating. That was an example of spontaneous introspective awareness that became an object of attention. Right? Some part of you knew that this wasn't what you intended to do. And you woke up and you became present again. Right? And not only that, it, it felt wonderful. By comparison, I use the word wake up. By comparison, in that moment of epiphany when you realize that you've been thinking about something instead of meditating, you feel awake compared to where you were when you were lost in the thought before. It was on a, almost a dreamlike lostness, even though you weren't asleep and it wasn't a dream. Um, you reinforce that. And that's how you overcome um, mind wandering and forgetting. Usually what happens for most people, is what used to happen to me, when I discover that I've been mind wandering instead of meditating is I get mad at myself. But it might have been 30 seconds ago or it might have been five minutes ago that I forgot that I was supposed to be meditating and got lost in that thought. So that anger that I direct towards myself, what does it get associated with? The most recent event that occurred in my mind, which was waking up to the fact that I was mind-wandering. So you do just the opposite. Feel really good about waking up. Say, wow, okay, this is the place I'd like to live in. I'd like to be this way all the time. And then you gently, very gently go back to meditation object and you try to stay awake as long as you can, knowing that you'll probably forget again and that your mind will wander. But every time that happens, you, you, you repeat that experience of, you know, pat yourself on the back, hip, hip, hooray, this is how I want to be, good for me, I woke up. And it happens more often and more easily until you stop forgetting and you stop mind-wandering. As you go along and you develop more introspective awareness, you can start to see when... Remember the alternating attention that I talked about? One of your meditation experiences will be that you're focusing on your meditation object, your breath, for example, if you're meditating on the breath, and you're also paying attention to a thought at the same time. There's a thought that stands out from the background from everything else. It stands out because your attention is alternating back and forth. And then gradually that thought gets more and more attention and your breath gets less and less attention until there's some point where the thought is getting more attention than the breath is. 
And at that point, you're at a great risk of forgetting. We have a term for that. We call that a gross distraction to distinguish it between a subtle, uh, from a subtle distraction. When your mind is alternating with something, but still spending more time on the meditation object, then it's a subtle distraction. As you develop more introspective awareness, you can see when a gross distraction is present. And you can refocus your attention on your meditation object, and you won't forget. So you're using peripheral awareness, and you're also strengthening peripheral awareness, and you start to have longer and longer periods of time where you don't forget, and your peripheral awareness gets stronger, and your attention becomes more stable. Eventually, you'll be able to detect the presence of subtle distractions before they become gross distractions and keep that from happening. Eventually, your introspective awareness will become so strong that um, all these corrections happen automatically and you just notice that, ah, my attention started to go to something and then my mind corrected automatically. And you find that you're, you, you now have attentional stability and powerful peripheral awareness that is very introspective. And at that point, you're a good meditator. At that point, you're a better meditator and the vast majority of people have been out there meditating for many years. But you do you the, you can arrive at this point very quickly um, if you have this knowledge, this understanding, this distinction between attention and peripheral awareness, and you use that knowledge in your in your meditation. So that's what I want to do now: is let's do a little guided meditation together, and if you. If you haven't worked with attention and peripheral awareness before, this is going to be an opportunity for you to do that. So I want you to make yourselves comfortable. All right. And now I'd like you to close your eyes, even if you're used to meditating with your eyes open. I'd just like you to close your eyes and become fully present. Now, what does that mean, to be fully present? I'm sitting here and I'm feeling sensations in my body. The weight of my body on... I'm sitting on a chair, you may be sitting on a cushion or a chair. I feel my clothing against my body, I feel certain parts of my body touching other parts. I hear the sound of a fan in the background. I hear traffic noises outside. And just relax into this presentness. Just letting everything be here in your mind. In other words, I'm inviting you to become cognizant 
of your field of conscious awareness. Things come into and leave your field of conscious awareness. A person just coughed. Now see if you can distinguish the field of conscious awareness from your attention, which is moving around within that field of conscious awareness. In other words, there are certain things that stand out and you can actually feel your attention moving from one thing to another, landing on it and staying there for a short while. There are thoughts coming and going as well. Just don't let them capture your attention and carry them carry you away. Now, if you haven't already done so, start intentionally directing attention. You notice it's sort of like shining a spotlight on different things that are present in your field of conscious awareness. So, for example, explore the world of sound by intentionally directing your attention to different sounds.
but continue to be aware of sensations in your body and thoughts that come and go. So also, you'll notice that although you're intentionally directing your attention, that it still moves spontaneously. So I want to, let's, I I said sounds, let's include everything now. And just familiarize yourself with the difference between attention and the field of conscious awareness and its contents that continue to be there whether you are intentionally directing attention or whether it's moving spontaneously.
experiment with your attention when it gets caught by something else, bringing it, to intentionally directing it away from that and to something else that you have intentionally chosen. Now I'd like you to direct your attention to the sensations that are produced by the act of breathing, either at your nose or at your abdomen, whichever you're more comfortable with. And just anchor your attention there. Whenever it goes somewhere else, just bring it back. And in particular, I want you to notice that while your attention is anchored to the sensations of the breath, your peripheral awareness, both introspective and extrospective, becomes stronger and clearer. And in particular, I want you to notice how qualitatively different the perception of the breath sensations are when you're focusing your attention on them from everything else that is being simultaneously known through awareness.
perhaps you can also notice how when something else begins to stand out more clearly in peripheral awareness, that your attention to the sensations of the breath is lessened proportionately. And notice how this dance of attention is taking place against the panoramic background of awareness of all kinds of other sensations, sounds, thoughts and feelings. Does it seem to you as though the world has become a much busier and noisier place just because we're meditating? Guess what? It hasn't. You're just aware of it. So, I know some of you have, are already familiar with the distinction between awareness and attention, and, but a lot of you, this, this won't, it's a familiar thing, but you've never really looked at it this way before, right? So I'd like to hear your feedback, your reactions, and questions. We've, we have another 15 minutes left, and I'd, I'd really love to hear your questions.
There's someone right here. So for the for the comparison of the awareness and the attention, can I say that awareness always effortless, but the attention it might be from effort to effortless. Like for experienced one, maybe they can effortless, but yes. for most of us, it requires some effort. Yes. Um, the way I would put it is that attention can be controlled intentionally. Um, the way I would put it is not that you are controlling attention, but you are generating intentions that your attention responds to. But to a limited degree, your attention is used to moving in response to uh, other unconscious forces. And that there's an effort involved in intentionally directing and sustaining attention. Right, because right. if awareness requires effort, there's no difference between awareness and the spontaneous movement of attention, right? Yeah, awareness is just there. Right. Right, it's just there. Um, it can be there to greater or lesser degrees. And one of the things that is very important to to know is that the more closely focused your attention is, the less awareness you tend to have. That your awareness begins to collapse when you become too focused. Okay. Right? Okay. Yeah. My second question is, the way you describe the unconsciousness, is that the same idea of in Buddhism, we have the emptiness, like Suzuki Roshi said. You know, everything comes from emptiness, then goes back to emptiness. <laughs> Is that the same idea? Of the, you know, all consciousness starts from unconsciousness, then goes back to. Yes, um, I, I would. I my answer to that would be yes, but I don't necessarily know that you're thinking of emptiness in the same terms that I am. But uh, but uh, the simple answer is is yes, right? Yeah. So I um, I have a question about um, I know that in our meditation we're trying to uh, get attention uh, stronger by practicing focusing our breath and also be aware of the peripheral awareness and therefore getting better at it. And in, I mean, I guess we could take this to our regular life and be more attentive to whoever we are paying attention to. And um, so, my question is about like, what is the spiritual benefit of it? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a very good question, and the answer has uh, many dimensions. As you develop more awareness, and as attention. Uh, begins to play its more appropriate role as the servant of uh, of your awareness, then um, you begin to have insight experiences. You you begin to notice things in awareness that you can subsequently investigate with attention that. Uh, are insight experiences in that they will the investigation of them 
will give rise to uh, capital I insight uh, in, into uh, a, a deeper understanding of the way things are. There's another dimension to it as well. You'll notice that this list actually corresponds um, in some ways to the description of what the awakened mind is like. And that this list describes more of the behavior of the unawakened mind. So that's a deeper significance of it, which I intend to talk about some this this weekend. But the spiritual significance of it is that when you have powerful introspective awareness, you can watch the only thing that there really is for you to watch, which is the contents of consciousness. And you can do that introspectively so that you can see the way the mind is creating your reality and you can penetrate beyond that appearance to a more accurate understanding of of the reality that you're a part of in your relationship to it. Okay. Thank you. Did that make sense to you? I mean, did, did you follow that? Yeah. Good. Great. Yeah. Hi. Um, you said at the beginning that um, thoughts come from subconscious or unconscious. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And because we cannot empirically study them to know exactly where they're coming from, it's not accurate to say that I think, but more that it, it thinks in me. Yeah. Kind of like it, it rains. Yeah, it, it rains. It, it thinks. It thinks, yes. Or in the thinking, there is only the thinking. Not the, the thinker is an imaginative... Correct. The thinker is just a made-up entity. Okay. Um, so if it thinks in me, is it correct to say that maybe it thinks from a collective unconscious? Yes. Yes. Thank you. Right. Yes. There's someone over here. Yes. Um, So you touched on this earlier. Um, I'm curious about this translating um, as we go about our day when we're not actually in meditation. Mm-hmm. And the image I have in mind specifically is washing dishes. Um, I noticed during the meditation, as is common, that the biggest pull away from what I intended to give my attention to was thoughts yeah. more than anything else. And so when, when I set out to wash the dishes, I remind myself to pay attention either to washing the dishes or to the feel of the water or to something like that. And usually that happens for a few seconds, Mm -hmm. and then there I go. And then when I turn off the water, I remember again. And I was just wondering how this, like, translates to something like that that doesn't really require a whole lot of attention. I've washed dishes a million times. Mm -hmm. Yes, well... 
yes, if you're washing dishes doesn't require a lot of attention. But what you can do is you can anchor your attention to the simple actions of washing dishes, which in fact are uh, quite a bit more complex than just anchoring your attention to the breath, which is much simpler, right? You can you the the value of of focusing your attention on what you're actually doing in the moment is that um, true your attention is is way overpowered for the task, but it gets it out of the way and it allows you to become more fully aware of everything else to become more fully present and. The biggest part of the everything else, um, not size-wise, of course, but significance, uh, the biggest part of the everything else is what's going on in your own mind. So you'll become aware of the kinds of thoughts um, because you're keeping your attention on washing the dishes. I mean, some attention is going to go to those thoughts anyway, but you're keeping it to a minimum. And so you're going to become much more aware of those thoughts from this kind of impersonal and objective perspective. Um, you know, when they talk about paying attention but non-judgmentally, really the non-judgmentally part has to do more with the awareness aspect than the attention. So you're paying attention to washing the dishes while you are observing um your own mind and your environment, and you're you're experiencing it as it is, without all the overlay, conceptual overlay, and the judgment and the value of value, you know, the um, the attachment of different kinds of value judgments to it. Does that make sense? So that's washing your dishes or brushing your teeth mindfully or following your breath intention and, and, and sitting meditation mindfully, all of these things are ways of allowing you to be more fully present and to experience what's happening in, in a much richer and fuller way, but with a part of your mind that doesn't, that doesn't polarize it into self and other and uh, isn't, uh, isn't evaluating and analyzing and judging it. So the attention on the dishes is a way to like move from that self-centeredness to thoughts to, arising to as being opposed open, to my thoughts. Yeah, and my to being very open and aware. And the fascinating things, I mean, the first thing that you notice is is the silliness of the behavior of of your mind, the kind of thoughts that it generates. Thank you. That's the person behind you and then somebody behind him. And, Hi. Uh, uh, I wonder if you could speak for a little bit about um, attention, awareness, the unconscious, and problem-solving or creativity. So I have the experience that I'll, I set out to try and solve a problem and I'll uh, set... I'll, I'll be looking at and perceiving material and trying to like pull some kind of answer from it. And I, so I intend, and I intend a conscious experience that I can't really characterize. 
uh, where I'm sort of vaguely aware uh, and and attending to a certain subject matter, but um, but my it almost feels like my conscious power sort of recedes, and I'm I'm almost asleep, and I'm depending on a kind of mind wandering or unconscious experience, and then some at some point something appears, which is very exciting because it's what I wanted. It's like an answer. But I feel that that process, when I come out of that, um, my meditation would be terrible because I'm just, it's almost like at odds with what I'm trying to do in meditation. Um, that's something I'm kind of struggling with. Right um, yeah, you've kind of covered a lot of things and I'm, I'm not sure. You were talking about problem solving and then you're talking about in meditation. Yeah, so two separate things. So, like, I would say I'm, you know, um, like, sitting down to really focus on a problem that's not okay, not to yeah. do with meditation, but, say, with my work yeah. or something creative. Um, during that experience, uh, I feel like uh, I almost go a little bit unconscious. And it gives me what I want. I get yeah. answers. Okay, I don't know what your work is, but it's, yeah. it's obvious to me that what's happening. You see... Um, attention uh, and, and consciousness, uh, conscious, the contents of consciousness are limited. Even, you know, we, we talk about the whole field, this, this still has limited content. And um, the kind of conscious problem solving that takes place is the linear processing of your attention it's the same as when you're doing uh math uh, you're doing uh multiplication or long division or something like that where it's sequential step by step and it's serial processing in the meantime your unconscious mind has is like thousands of parallel processors and uh if you get out of the way once you have clearly set the problem in your mind which is the best, which attention is really good at. Attention identifies what are the relevant components, what is the goal, what, you know, what are the limitations. I mean, um, uh, chopping your head off isn't the best solution. Um, that rule, you know, attention is really good at setting up the problem. And then you let all of the unconscious parallel processing take place. A lot of the answers it comes up with aren't aren't so good, but they appear, they appear in consciousness, they appear in the field of conscious awareness, and your attention then can sort through them and, and find the one that works, or almost works, and, and pursue it to the next stage till you get the solution that is right. And that's using your whole mind. And if, uh, if you had damage to the right hemisphere of your brain, and you didn't have access to all of this other information, uh, all these other potential solutions that come from a different perspective coming into your consciousness, you'd find that you, there were only certain kinds of problems that you could solve, and you'd be very good at solving them, but not the ones that require thinking outside the box or any kind of novelty. I mean, you, you, could, you could do long division really well over and over and over again, but you wouldn't be able to solve the nine-dot problem, you know, where you have three rows of dots and you want to go through all the dots with just, uh, uh, is it three or four lines? One. Anyway, it doesn't matter. <laughs>
Right. You want to pass the microphone back to the woman behind you? Yeah. Thanks. Um, I have uh, two quick questions. Um, one, I was uh, hoping to get your thoughts on um, how you actually uh, focus on the meditation object when, at least in my experience, like when I focus on the sensations of the breath at the tip of my nose, say, um, it kind of, like, I lose it. It just, not get distracted, but, like, I look there and, I, like, I don't know what I'm focusing on anymore because it's, like, this pulse or, like, this, like, when I get rid of, like, the mental image, not get rid of it, but, like, focus on the physical sensation, it's, like, I don't know what it is anymore. It's, like, this space. I'm not saying that to sound cool. Like, I really don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. And then the second question is, um, you mentioned uh, this, like, metacognitive aspect of uh, kind of knowing when your mind has wandered and giving yourself some positive reinforcement. Um, how do you know when you've, like, focused too much on that meta element? Because it's possible, I've noticed, to get hooked a bit on that type of thinking, too. Um <clears throat> Well, to, to answer the first question, I, I'd need to know more about your your personal practice as to what you're describing is that you focus your attention on the breath and the breath sensations become unrecognizable. And that can be either a good thing, depending on the stage of meditation that you're at, is that means that you are beginning to see the the sensations without all of the conceptual overlay that that tells you what they are, that puts labels and names on them, you're starting, starting to have non-conceptual perception, that would be a very va- advanced meditative experience. Or the other possibility is you're slipping into a kind of dullness where um, due to the lack of mental energy, the... It, you're having a dreamlike experience of those sensations rather than actually uh, perceiving them uh, in the normal way. So I'd, I'd have to talk to you on a personal level to answer that first question, or maybe you can find the answer yourself uh, from what I've just said. Um, yeah, we are going a bit over time, and I'll try to cut this off. The second part of your question, I, I forgot. Just repeat, remind me real quick. Uh, medico- too much metacognitive exactly. introspective awareness. Um, when something happens that uh, should have involved uh, attention and you didn't have any attention available to it, that really, in my experience, that almost never happens. Because it's the very nature of metacognitive introspective awareness that you're going to know if there's something arises that needs to be attended to. So I need to cut it off, right? Yeah. Okay. We have we have lots more time tomorrow and and, and the next day. Well, we'll have plenty more questions and answers throughout the weekend. Yeah. By the uh, way, we'll start out with questions tomorrow morning. So for all those questions that you didn't have. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.